Hey gang, it's Harold, and here's another podcast. I'm going to use this forum to share my thoughts about the games I play and the people I meet. We'll experiment and work to find some interesting content. I look forward to your thoughts, comments, and ideas. This podcast is singularly composed of an interview with designer Uwe Eckert. We'll discuss his company, Academy Games, and their plans for the coming year. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to your feedback. Eichert is the CEO of Academy Games. He founded the company 10 years ago. He has a degree in mechanical engineering and an MBA specializing in corporate finance and strategy from The Ohio State University. His hobbies include soccer, playing the violin, martial arts, painting, and sailing. He speaks German, Spanish, and of course English. Uvo won the James F. Dunnigan Design Elegance Award for his Conflict of Heroes series. His game designs won the Charles S. Roberts Award and the Gamma Best Historical Board Games Award in 2009, 2010, and 2012. We'll start this interview with a question to Uva about what their plans are this convention season. Number one, this month is very busy for us because we're going to WBC, which is my favorite convention at this time, um, scenery-wise. They they change it from ugly Lancaster into beautiful <laughs> Seven Springs Ski Resort. Right. And very inexpensive, full suites with kitchen, big living room, fireplaces in the condos on top of the hills. So you're looking down over the hills onto the ski slopes, gorgeous with a huge kitchen. Uh, we just hang out, have big tables at night if we want to play some games after a long day of gaming down at the convention. Highly love that. Um, then we just got done with Origins. We had a big uh, 40 by 40 square foot booth uh, for events. And then another one, the dealer hall, a... Um, another a two by two island and ran over 150 events and tournaments there. And now we're doing the same thing at Gen Con and Gen Con is huge. Uh, it's, it's almost to the point where it's, it's getting too big. I think, uh, even the dealer hall, you know, trying to find a booth, um, of any size, you know, that's not, you know, taking up a third of the, of the hall is, is so difficult because you have really good gaming booths. This is one of my only concerns there. You have a very good gaming company, two or three booths in size, and they're surrounded by people selling sunglasses, um, shoe inserts and, uh, you know, lip balm. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just become such a mishmash, but then, other game companies who want to come in can't because they don't have the room. And that's my only concern there, that it's, it's growing so quickly. It's, it's losing some of that ability to 
really take it in. Uh, you know, multiple hotels, events are being run multiple hotels. You have to walk 10 minutes through downtown to get to another area to play, let's say, um, a good role-playing game. I'm heavy into, I love role-playing games, you know, Pathfinder and Savage Lands and things like that. So that's my thing after a long day of being in a booth and doing historical games, I switch off by playing a, a, you know, a halfling thief or something like that. Right. So, but uh, Gen Con is coming up and why do we do it? it? It's the biggest convention in the United States for board games it's we go there with a crew of 26 people. We run, you know, over 144 events there, events and tournaments, and it is good marketing for us. I mean, we have to be there to really get the word out, have thousands of people see our products, walk by our booths and, and see our new games and even our old games um, that continually sell well year after year. So Gen Con is very important to be but it is probably my least favorite to go to. You know, and that's it's, not, it's not Gen Con's fault. It's just the size, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it seems like it's, um, as it grows, it's becoming more of a lifestyle convention uh, as opposed to purely games convention, which, uh, which is what I'm looking for. I think uh, when I go to a convention, less, less about lifestyle and more about, uh, about the games themselves. So uh, it's interesting. But it's also interesting that you choose to spend so much time at origins and gen con because so much of those conventions are dedicated to things other than war games. Uh, and, and so it kind of shows that, that, uh, is, is, is another demonstration of the hobby growing across the line into, uh, into those Euro game spaces. We, we kick, butt. we kick butt at these, these shows. Um, our games are, from the standpoint design wise, we're trying to make them as modern and as accessible in the Euro gaming type of market as possible. Because I think Euro games have made the most dramatic and significant advances in game design. Uh, war games in general, they're still half of them are stuck in the eighties. Right. Uh, they still have charts and things you look up and, and you got to wait five or 10 minutes to take your turn and come on, that that's not modern. That's not modern psyche anymore. People, even the old guys, are getting used to their phone and getting inundated with information. And it's not like you know in in the seventies and eighties where in the evening the news and the TV station switched off at eight o'clock. The three that you had, and um, you sat on the porch going, "Huh, I might just go through my ASL like I did." Right. And, and study it for a few more hours before I, I tanker off to bed and head out to work the next day. So, um, you know, it's 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 really evolved where uh, the game design is really so integrated, very few exception rules, very few rules that you have to remember because it's built in the system. And that's our biggest uh, challenge and that we really work at and really stress and I think because of that, you know, as I, as I said before, we don't have a game that hasn't sold over 20,000 copies. And our heavy-duty war games, like Conflict of Heroes, The Waking Bear, sold over 35,000 copies. And we have to reprint four to 5,000 every year. So, And that's a game that's 
nine years old or 10 years old. So um, I think war games are, are very mainstream. Uh, just the old war games aren't. The war games that have you interacting with people, team working together, um, like our Vikings uh, in our Birth of America series, very light war games, but a lot of strategy. So um, I, I, I do believe that we sell tons of games because the younger kids love strategy games and the modern war games that are coming out by our company, Worthington Games, uh, GMT, uh, you know, they're, they're making such significant MMP, they're such significant advancements to the benefit of our hobby. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And, and uh, you know, the, the system that I'm close to that I think's made a big part of that is the work that Volco's done with the coin series. And, uh, you know, adjusting the system. Uh, I so, love the system, but it's not a game you're going to get a, a girlfriend or a wife to play. Um, he's doing great for the hardcore war gamers. But you're not going to be selling 40,000, 50,000 copies into the type of market-like origins. Um, you know, that his, his games have true depth and true really critical analysis that takes true study. Um, and, and 95% of your gamers don't have that patience. Yeah, I agree. And I, you know, I, I don't, I don't think his goal was to sell 90,000. I think his, his, his goal was the depth, but also to make some progress into a new way of thinking about the conflict yes. uh, and, and, mo and modeling the conflict in a way that makes it more, more accessible, but not necessarily perfectly accessible. And I want to, I want to be hundred percent clear here that I was not agreeing that his games are incredible genius because I love them. We play and we love them. I'm just saying from the standpoint that the coin series is not the series that's making war games accessible to the mass Euro game market. Um, there you're looking more at like uh, your, your uh, Richard Berg type games. Uh, the, uh, what are they now? Now I'm drawing a, a, a blank. Uh, memoir 44. How about that? Exactly. Like the memoir 44 is pulling in tons of young kids. Right. They love playing it with their, with their parents. Um, we found out like our games, like our Vikings are 1775, which you can teach in two minutes. They don't have any of the depths of the old war games, but th what they're doing is they are the stepping stone for people to say, Hey, this is a war game. I'm really having fun and I have to put critical thought behind it because if I play well, I'll win. If I don't play well, I lose. So, um, and that's a stepping stone into the coin series and the ASL series and our conflict of heroes series. So what, what are the characteristics that, that we need to change from those old, old board games that we rem remember so romantically to, uh, to make them more attractive to the younger people and new people in the hobby? It's really quite simple. Look at popular games like Scythe or Eclipse or, or games like that that really are war games, tactical war games. But what they've done and what games like that are doing is they're taking away this need to memorize more than three things. And that's what we say. You can only give three things for people to have to remember in your game to be able to take it in and play it and enjoy it. 
So all the items, all these little, this, these are the rules, except if this happens, has to be totally cut away and put into this modern system where, for example, like an eclipse, which was such a jump over the third edition uh, Twilight Imperium rules, where it all of a sudden came in and said, okay, you have these cubes here, and as you're placing your cubes when you take over and discover planets, it opens up visually your resources on your, on your card. Or like Scythe, where if you're developing a certain area, you pull a cube from the bottom part and move it to the top. So all of a sudden, the bottom part, you have more ability to do stuff, and then the top, your costs are shrunk down. Ingenious little devices like that, where in the old days, read half a page on how to do this. Okay, your, your fleets are moving from the Atlantic to the Mediterranean, and if the Germans have so many subs and blah, blah, and then, oh my God. <laughs> you know, shoot me in the head. Right. But now, if it's a simple little cube movement as you're getting advantage or disadvantage in certain areas, that is visual without learning rules. You just see colors, symbols, whatever. Same with combat. I'm just blown away by some of the incredible combat systems that are out there. Uh, same like our Agents of Mayhem that we're doing based on the Saints Row video game series. Um, we're doing that because they loved our games. And they said, would you like to do the Saints Row game? It's, it's not a historical military system, but it's, you know, we've only sold 33 million copies of this game in the last three years. <laughs> We're like, 33 million? Count us in. But there we took our, our game that we, we've developed for um, military training uh, on our Fallujah urban fighting, which is three-dimensional urban squad level up to company size. Um, urban combat, which has not been released to the public, to the to the gaming public, but one of the guys had been in the military, had seen it, and said, wow, can you make a game like that? And there we got rid of all the charts. Your distance, depending on what type of weapons you're using, dictates which color die you use, and the different color dies are different number of faces. And on these faces are the different symbols. So if, for example, you are undercover... That cover symbol, if it's on the face that you roll, even though it says hit, but it shows that cover symbol, eyes and cover, cover that symbol no longer counts. So instead of taking the old chart, do I hit? Oh, if I hit, do I penetrate? If I penetrate, what damage do I do? Modern statistics allows us now to take all these things and condense them, aggregate them into one result. Right. And that is modern Euro game design that now more and more companies in the war game and designers in the war game field are utilizing, implementing that is going to catapult our hobby. Uh, the, war game, the war game market is going to continue growing like the gangbusters. And the companies who are specializing in it and who are taking on these new um, design criteria, which is almost all of them, they're going to continue to grow and make money hand and fist because we're in a very low competitive part of the market. Agreed. I like it. Well, so when do we get to buy this um, this this uh, urban warfare game? The Fallujah. Um, we the first thing is our conflict of heroes. We're totally changing the rules over again because of our discussions uh, with the Marine Corps and all that. 
uh, saying that, you know, a lot of younger kids playing first-person shooters, they're very good at squad-level type of uh, decision-making because it's more firefighting, quick reactions. But as you gain higher ranks and all of a sudden you platoon company leader, now you have to look at your entire forces, be able to set them up and critically think how to put down, uh, let's say, suppression fire zones, how much uh, mortar fire you're going to need, how much artillery, how to get a change your relative viewpoint of the battlefield into an overall battlefield um, understanding. So because our conflict of heroes was going for giving seven action points to every unit, we are going more with the I, uh, army criteria of how does a commander have to break up his his command thought process during battle. Now we're going more towards the eye of God type feeling, seeing all my forces and being able to skip around. So even we, with our new Storm of Steel, are making huge changes to our Conflict of Heroes rule set. And we're going to get bitching up to high heaven by probably 5% of our user base because <laughs> they love the old system. Right. And we tell them, say, you can play old or new system. It's backwards compatible to all the games we sold before, and the old system is for compatibles to all the games we'll be publishing. But we're making these changes because before you're making that critical decision cycle, decision anticipation resolution, every maybe two minutes. Now we've brought it down literally to every 10 seconds. You're doing something where you're, you're doing that critical, I decide, my anticipation goes up, resolution. Oh, I made it, I didn't make it. My guy was spent, not spent. Oh, not to do it over again. Back, forth, back, forth. So we made these changes just because the entire psyche of the gamer is changing. It's changing so quickly with the internet and the way we're processing information. Our time we're giving to think about stuff before we react. And that's a total heuristic decision talks I'm giving to the military and all that is that we have to be very, very careful because we're doing more and more gut heuristic biased decisions, meaning a heuristic decision are these internal um, cycle flows that your brain through past experiences subconsciously makes you do. So you, you get a, you get information thrown at you and you don't even think about it. Subconsciously you go, Oh my gut feel, I'm going to do this subconscious decision-making, that heuristic bias. So we're getting more and more pulled in that direction, and, and that's all I read now. I don't read military history books. I don't read um, things of battles. and I'm reading 100% books on psychology, addiction, um, behavioral analysis. Uh, a book I'm reading right now, which is, is phenomenal, is called... Um, and I'm, I'm reading it the second time through, and it's one of the best books I've read in a long time. It's called Misbehaving by uh, a guy named Richard Tala, and it's a book on economic decision-making and how you can indoctrinate and also fully push people making a decision in such a way that they don't know that you're actually making the decision for them. 
uh, just phenomenal just because they're making more and more they're finding more and more research in behavioral type stimulated reactions right so so we refer to the discipline as behavioral economics right exactly yes and that is 100% totally relate usable for any other type of decision you're making because you may be a military commander and you have a defensive line set up. Will you take and accept losses, higher losses on a defensive line, or will you accept higher losses on sending in reinforcements, additional men, in order to pull that line back? Behavioral science says, no, you will not send in the reinforcements to take 10% losses, but you will accept the 10% losses on your defensive line. Um, very, very interesting stuff, you know, so that is a very key component that has to be brought into war games. If we want the war games to be number one, realistic from the standpoint of the results of gameplay simulate actual battlefield, um, results. And that does not mean that I have to count how many hand grenades I have and this and that. What has to be very important, that's what we get out of our biological type of statistical analysis, which says like with T-cell attacking bacteria and all that, we don't know all the little nuances inside of this black box. What we care about is if we hit a button on the one side, is the reaction on the other side, number one, measurable? And then can we bring about statistical type of um data out of this so that in the future we know, okay, if we do this, the probability of this happening out here is this percentage. If we bring that from biology and everything into military or any other type of game design, that is a key thing, that we don't have to go through all these little charts and try to do the minuet of the 70s, which was a big thing, and now stepping back and going, no, we're going to just bring it into a tight system that have some very good statistical um, probability emulation of a situation. That's what we're looking for. As you go through the changes in Conflict of Heroes, that should reflect the work you've done on the urban warfare game, I guess. And and the game will continue to have the the punch-counterpunch that, that we all love it for. Well, yeah, even more so now because – before you took seven, you had seven action points with one unit or a group of unit. Now you get rid of that completely, and you're taking action with one unit, and then you see if you're spent or not. And you can bring the probabilities of being spent down by spending your command support. So now in the old game, you kept your command support to the end. Now you're using it like in real battle continuously. Plus, if you take an action with the same unit twice in a row, you get a fatigue penalty. So what we've done now that people are, are playtesters and all are saying, holy cow, the games play literally 30% faster, but where they used to concentrate just in one segment of the battle, they're now being forced to play the entire battlefield simultaneously across the whole front. So uh, it's, been a, it's been a very good for us, a, a very, I think, positive um, change for the series going forward. But we've held back. We haven't published a new game in the series. We had Guadalcanal. But Storm Steel's been held back two and a half years because of these rule changes. 
But now, as soon as rule changes are in, Storm Steel is getting shipped. We have France 1940 done. We have the first men in, 95% done with the airborne invasions. Uh, Hurtigan Forest, which a lot of Americans are not familiar with, um, which was really the before and after of the Battle of the Bulge. Americans don't weren't really told about it just because the big, you know, first infantry division just got bloodied. It's much nicer to talk about the bulge where the Germans got cremated, but then the stupid decisions made in the Hürtigen Forest campaign where we just squandered American men lives um, wasn't really studied until, you know, 2001, all of a sudden a lot of books were published about it. So that's going to be a very, I think, good game for us with Americans and Germans. Um, and then we have Kreta, the uh, battle for Kreta with the Fallschirmjäger against the British and the Australians. So we have a, a whole slew of games that were just sitting there waiting until we were ready with this new rule set. My fault, because we're really anal German guys, you know, but <laughs> um, we tell people, and I've quoted this several times, I always say, um, a shitty game is shitty forever, and a late game is only late once. <laughs> so, yeah, so I think be, pe people will forgive the late at some point, right? I hope so. I, I tell you what, I probably get a call every day, some guy saying, Uva, one storm is still going to be done. I'm like, son of a bitch, I promised my wife I'd have it done last September, and here it's already July of this year. And finally, we're getting the files ready to go with the printer. It's like, where did a year go? And I worked my ass on this, you know? It's I don't get it. Uh, you know, maybe I'm just going, I'm getting old and I'm just, you know, it's Netflix. I, I blame Netflix. There you go. I got to blame something. Yeah, well, why not Netflix, right? They're rich. They can uh, they can tolerate us being mad at them. And oh, we I'm not mad. I'm addicted. I love, oh, geez, old Pete's Netflix. You know, I start watching a good show and I can watch an entire season at once. So oh. what's, what, what have you watched recently? What's your favorite? I just got done um, watching <coughs> The Punisher. Yes. It's a Marvel one. Loved it. Oh, my God. I just yep. ate that one up. Um, Frontier, uh, The uh, after the uh, French-Indian War, after I think it's after 1775, in the, in the Canadian frontier with the Indian nations and the the French trappers <coughs> fighting the decline of the uh, Hudson Bay Company. So is that a, is that a, is that a serial? Is that? Yeah, it's in the second series now. Very oh, wow. good. Not to check that out. Um, of course, The Last Kingdom by Bernard Cornwell. Yes. Um, I can't watch the Vikings anymore after watching that one. I love it. There's so many good series out there, you know. And then we just watched. Uh, the stupid comedies. I mean, it was so stupid. I don't even remember the title. And I was laughing my butt off with my wife. <laughs> um, it was based on two true stories. Some dude who robbed the biggest cash heist in the history of the United States, you know? Right. And it was, it was hilarious. It's so stupid. But, you know, after reading books on psychology and everything. I just, at night, I just got to turn off sometimes, you know? Yeah, it's perfect. It's perfect. I love the stand-ups too. They, they throw some great stand-ups through the system. Oh, uh, I agree. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, oh, a good book. I just got done right. Oh my goodness. My favorite trilogy in years, Red Rising. Have you heard I of have, that one? I have not. It's Tell a sci-fi. It. It's like Hunger Games, Lord of the Flies, 
and Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game mixed together and amped up 200%. Wow. And it is, it is a trilogy that every book you think, oh, my God, it can't get any better. And then it gets better. And it's uh, by a guy named Pierce Brown. Red Rising. Bam. I'll have to check it out. Now, um, have you have you guys – I can't remember anything you've done that had been based on some other intellectual property or uh... – no, the first one we've done is now the Saints Row video game series. That's yes. our Agents of Mayhem. Then we have two other big, t- uh, big, even bigger um, title that we're looking at doing. They contacted us. So if we get those, it'll be, it'll be huge. So we've been hiring like crazy. Um, we just hired two new designers, just hired a, a rules writing expert. Um, so we're getting a lot of really good full-time people now on staff hired another artist full-time. So we're growing nicely uh, where we're kind of hurting on is on the sales side of it. But we're, you know, our problem is 45% of our sales are to gaming market. 55% of our sales are into uh, schools, museums, military. So we actually sell fewer games to the gaming market than we do to our other markets. Interesting. When you say military, is that... uh... Is, is that to the government or is it to, to military uh, buyers to buy them for fun? Yeah, the, the military is like the school systems. It's There's no federal really purchasing um, system. Right. It, it's very frustrating. It's very tough to to uh, penetrate. The same like schools. You know, we start academy games to do teaching games for schools. Right. And then because I had a game on electricity uh, called Short Circuit, which we still haven't published because – we, when we analyzed the market, the barrier to entry was just too high because it's just totally non-centralized. Every school system and then every school within the system does its own purchasing. So um, we decided instead to go into a low barrier market, which was the war game market, which was the lowest. Now that we've penetrated that, we've got a good name. Now schools are coming to us, so that's grown tremendously for us a homeschool series we have under our apple tree games uh many people don't know that but we have a division called apple tree games that sells to homeschool with with logic games for little kids um and then under our apollo games we're doing our sci-fi fantasy game series hiring full-time is uh progressive relative to what we've done in the past right in the industry which is everybody's a contractor is your balance shifting toward full-time versus contractors? Yes, most definitely, because we need we need good people, and we still rely on on you know fans to help us with editing and everything. Right. But you know, my time that I took to write the rules and get everything down for uh, our conflict of heroes and then also our panzer group guderian which we're doing that's uh oh that's great that was um guderian's the jim dunnigan game that we totally redid um we totally modernized it and and, you know we're trying to get that done and out um so all these rules that need to be written instead of me sitting down and spending months going through it we decided we need some very good full-time writers so we are, we're, as a matter of fact, giving hiring a gentleman today, I hope, I hope he accepts, 
um, that's worked for us in the past doing projects, but now we want him full time and we hope we get him. But he's, you know, has a degree in, in writing, um, understands the gaming market, and we've had him now write two of a rule series, and he's he does a phenomenal job. And I look at him and go, holy cow. You know, I think I'm a good writer. I wish I could write this well. So that will speed up, I hope, the number of games we can put out because we're very slow to put out games because, you know, our games are used in schools and museums, et cetera, worldwide. So you have to be so careful. And then we also want the rules to be very progressively teaching, you know, so that you know uh, definition or comment or idea is written without it having been defined ahead of time. So it's a slow buildup. And it's difficult to find good writers to do that. Um, for example, a standard writing out there that writers who are good rules writers, in quotes, that say, okay, here are the movement rules. And then they put every little movement rule in. But that's not how the brain can take in new data. So instead, it has to be, okay, I'm just going to give you this little segment of how movement works. And all the ifs, ands, or buts that are associated with movement, I'm going to ignore at this point and bring in later after you understand how movement integrates with entire gameplay. And to find a good writer who understands that and understands how the brain can, that cognitive learning, yes, that is a key thing. And to find a good writer who can do that and also understands InDesign and how to lay stuff out is is difficult to find. No doubt. And when you find them, you want to keep them. It's interesting that, you're, that your model enables you to afford this because it enhances the overall margins. But the margins per game are still tight, right? I mean... No, we, there's money in gaming. There is lots of money. You, you, every one of my friends who owns game companies, they're making money. They're making money. You know, I look at Gremlin games, I look at Arcane Wonders, I look at um, the uh, Genius games. All these guys, we're, 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 we have good cash flow, we can pay ahead, Kickstarter helps a lot. Um, if we were relied only on the wholesale system, we'd go out of business. The old way doesn't work. Um, but a good mix of you know, Amazon sales, Walmart sales, along with Kickstarters, along with full distribution with stores, and trying to keep the price up without the online discounters totally cutting your price where a store can no longer afford to sell your games. That's, I think, the key thing, and that's what we're at this moment trying to um, to alleviate. And that's really right now our big push on getting maps together. Um, that means manufactured suggested pricing um, that the stores that we offer then certain items to that are not available full, through full distribution, that they will have access to these if they also agree to sign a map pricing structure that they say, okay, we're not going to undercut the MSRP more than so many percent. Right. If we do, we're, we can no longer get all this cool stuff. You know, that's clearly what uh, Asthma Day did, right, after they captured such a big part of uh, of the, the gaming uh, supply, took took control of that pricing channel, which was completely out of control. 
and, and I think as Asmo Day is the best thing that could have happened to the market, and it's the best thing for small companies such as ourselves, because they're now such a huge company that all the game companies that they're buying, a lot of which were competitors of ours directly, are now being hampered because Asmodee now has to say, no, you can't put out seven, eight games this year. You can only put out three because mm-hmm. we have to put you in. So it's helping little companies like us tremendously. They're bringing, keeping the price range up so that we can survive and hire good people to put out good games. Um, and I think the gamers are also beginning to realize that, yeah, the games are beginning to cost 60 to $80, for the amount of hours you're getting funding the quality components are going up so high that I think the value is there and, and the support is there, especially for war gamers. I think your average war gamer has a job, you know, and and they they don't mind supporting the companies so that they can survive and hire good people to put out quality products. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the ex- expectation is excellent products and certainly willing to pay a higher price for a quality product, and that should support everything else through the value chain. And, and I, you know, if you look at, at the, the path that Avalon Hill and SPI took at the end and the, the distributor problem they got into uh, and the cash flow issues they had, I, I just, uh, you know, it's great to see Asma they take control of the. Uh, of the channel and and it's great to hear that you're following or, or or not following but but in doing the same thing so uh for a little company like us it's so very difficult to keep tracking it now there are very good companies popping up that will continuously monitor all your price all sales of your products worldwide over the web so even that's becoming now manageable interesting so technology is is really making everything so much simpler and easier. Right. Most of our money goes into into software and and proceduralizations. Um, we get orders in now worldwide. No matter where people log into our website to, our website now sees what their IP address is and automatically puts them in the pages that shows them for their region, let's say Europe or Asia or Australia or whatever, what the inventory levels are, what their costs and prices are, what their shipping is going to be, without them even knowing it, they place the order. The orders automatically get sent to our fulfillment centers through Oracle and and, and ShipStation. They then fulfill it, and on the hour, our servers get updated. We don't touch a thing, not a thing. It's all automated. And five years ago, we had three people doing that. So now we're getting rid of all these people through automation and being able to put that money into really good writers, really good artists, so that the senses and everything, that the games are coming up to standards of the Euro games. You know, the quality of your games is, is exceptional and reflective of that, of that intent. Let's talk about one game in particular that uh, I'd be interested in, in, in hearing your thoughts on how you approached it, but Freedom. Uh, freedom is a powerful subject and there's a great responsibility in, in covering that topic in a game, probably more than any other game that, that we all might play. So I'd love to hear how you, uh, how you address that, that sensitivity 
and 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 in you know the result is exceptional. So uh, just curious about the process. You know that was a very difficult game, and we still have we still have to um, react to to people outside of the gaming industry who don't know what the game is about. Their concerns and really anger at a company putting out a game about slavery. They don't understand that the game is about the abolitionist movement and cause and highlights really evils of slavery, what happened at the time, and really the laws that were enacted, how long it even took for them to take positive effect. You know, a lot of them didn't take effect until the late 70s, uh, even though they were passed right after the Civil War. So that was a very difficult game. Um, we, number one, had the cover, Stephen Pichol had to paint four different covers until we finally came up with a cover that really showed the desperation, but also the self-sacrificing and, and, and strength it took for the black slaves to, to make this decision to just up and leave a, 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 an area that they grew up with in a situation where they're told that they have to listen to everything that they're told to do, they have to do. And all of a sudden, they're going to they're gonna go thousands of miles trying to being hunted down, giving everything they knew up, risking their lives, their family lives, their kids' lives. The, the self-will and, and desperation and strength it took to do this yeah, the fear and the bravery and the courage, yes. Right, and to bring this, little things that you have to bring this across just even the cover. Literally, it took us four full paintings, and I'm talking full oil paintings. Then, speaking with a lot of the black Afro-American authors on the topic, which often is very divergent and different than what is taught in schools and bringing their thoughts into it, then bringing the, um, the slave catchers and the markets and putting it in was a big decision, even though it's one of the big negatives. And we still, you know, we have stores saying that they have black customers coming in um, and they see the game and they instantly get mad about it. And they have to go in and explain to them what it's about. So even now, this last few covers, we changed again. And of course, it helps that we have very positive PR on it. I mean, Wall Street Journal just did a whole article on Freedom of the Underground Railroad in April, and we sold out over the weekend. So Freedom's out of stock everywhere, so it's being reprinted. But because of this, we changed and we put verbiage on the front of the box, really stressing what it's about. So doing a game like Freedom is number one, very difficult. Number two, even five years after it's been published, our sales are phenomenal. It's one of our best-selling games, period, still. But it's still, at least on a weekly basis, we have to reply to concerns that are coming from the market, outside the gaming market. Um, but on the other hand, you know, it's being played in youth centers, inner-city youth centers, Schools across the nation, Rosen Publication has written books on how to use it in the classroom. 
so from that standpoint, again, it's one of those games that we've sold tens of thousands of that is one of these sleeper ones. You know, nobody, if, if other games in sci-fi did 40,000 games sold, it's a big, huge, mega selling hit and everybody wants it. And our games are these sleeper cells. You know, they just keep selling over and over, month after month. So we're very lucky. But it, it took a lot of energy and a lot of lot of talking and explaining to a lot of very upset folks, you know. Right. Right. And that I assume that will continue. But uh, Well, know. the next game in the series we want to do on the, um, on the Central and, and Mexican migration into America. And really, that is such a raw topic right now. Sure. That we are actually holding back on it. We have a game in design that that really pulls this whole topic with the pros and cons together. But you know, you have to make a decision how much time do you want to spend on something, even though you think it would help socially. But what are the down? What are the down parts? What are the downturns to that? And that's that's uh, same. We did one on the Cambodian War with the Pol Pot and all that. We got so much almost scary mail. We we decided it's not worth it. We're not gonna we're not gonna put a game like that out because it's still too raw. So it's difficult. We're working on another game on the entire Indian exploitation in Canada where they took the children away in the in the early 80s and all that, all the way to the late 90s, early 2000s. And we're putting them in white schools away from their tribes. They weren't allowed to learn their languages, their history, their culture. And it's an incredible game. But again, you know, we're in business to stay in business, and we're not a nonprofit organization that can spend higher dozens of people have to then front or, 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 or answer all the confrontations it takes. So it's it's a very difficult topic and it's it's a lot to think about as as a business on what we we want to do and what we should do and can do to stay. Yeah, I hear you. It's um it's a heady choice to cover those topics and uh you know I think it's much appreciated in general, but uh I can see where it can be a very complicating factor and in what you do. We're in business to make money. Right. You know, we have to make money. Even though we're passionate about these causes, we're passionate about history, passion doesn't put food on the table and let you hire good people. And, you know, we have to be profitable. And and that's, again, another fact. It, it's, it's hard to talk about this, Harold, because it's, um, you know, these are things you really don't often talk about. Yeah, I, I hear you. And, and, and so, um, that's why I asked the questions and I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you're willing to talk about it because it's, uh, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a great thing that you're willing to do it and it's a brave thing. Um, and I think that it probably, uh, improves the satisfaction of your existing employees and your customers. It does. And that's why we do get some very good people in here because, you know, we, we do. We have some very good games in development that we're learning now. I'm not saying what we're putting out because I don't want people in a year saying, dang it, you said it's coming out a year ago. It's still not out. They said, <laughs> muzzle Uva. Notice I'm not allowed to tweet. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not allowed to say what we're coming out with uh, in the short term. So um, I've been I've been uh, 
cauterized. They say, so I've learned. Well, well, let's <laughs> test that. I w- that was my next question is what's coming that's going to be interesting. Are you, can you, can you give me any answer? Can you whisper, <laughs> whisper something nobody will hear? You're, you're trying to get me in here. No, but uh, as I said, the conflict appears we're making tremendous and also all the solo expansions, really making good headway with that. Um, we have the, with our Birth of America series and our Vikings, our next game, and that's going to be a sci-fi version, which is phenomenal, Birth of Soul. And it's going to be a huge board with the planets moving inside of the boards. And you're playing the corporations. It's all from the asteroid belts outside of Mars towards the sun. So it's a pure, beautiful war game, incredible, but sci-fi. So, again, we're trying to pull people in who would never play uh, 1775, but will play a sci-fi game, have so much fun with the system, and want to buy the rest of the series. And they don't care if it's historical because now they know they're having fun with it. So that's a biggie. We're doing... um, the old Panzer Group uh, Guderian that Jim Dunnigan did, we totally redid it. Totally redid the chart, all gone. Totally modernized it. And um, spoke with Jim, and he was 100%. He's so busy right now, you know, he's like, yeah, whatever. Um, but we had two guys who are doing excellent work with us on that, who are designing all the campaigns. So that's hopefully coming up in 2019. Now are we gonna uh, are we gonna preserve some uh, some sort of hidden unit? Oh yeah, it's all there. The French and the the Russians they all have the question marks. All the fun parts of the game have been kept, but all the old school gameplay where you do all your moves and then I do mine. I have to go through charts. All gone. Now it's back and forth, back and forth. You see, no more charts. It's very very unique. Every counter if you have panzers has two red squares on it well the red squares are the red six-sided dice whereas if it's a um yellow hexagon well that's a 12-sided yellow die so all of a sudden the probabilities and all are changing depending on the units and if they're hit or not but they're all the charts are gone but all the statistics have been kept but built into a modern warfare uh, system Oh, that's great. Uh, looking forward to it. One of my favorite games. Oh, uh, it's yeah, one of mine also, and that's why we really wanted to take it. And um, it's been ready now for. It just needs a little love um, to to finish off the rules. That's why we need the rules writer. Our next really good game uh, that's done. We just need to again put the little verbiage finishing touches. Brian Asklev did uh, the next game in our. Fog of War series, which was our Strike of the Eagle, which is probably one of my favorite games we've ever published. Mm-hmm. And um, it's the Korean War, When Whales Fight. And uh, When Whales Fight is phenomenal. We delayed it a little because we put we wanted to put for pre-order people when we make it open for pre-orders. Uh, we wanted to have the add-on will be modern Korea. We wanted the Trump factor and the um, the Kim factor added in. So that'll have modern units, the modern leaders. But you know what's so surprising why we want to do it is since the 50s, the players, the circle, nothing's changed. <laughs> it's all the same problems, the same, nothing has changed in 60 years. Right. right. So, and I don't think it will change. So uh, that's going to be very good. So we have some very good war games coming out. 
And then, of course, we are also have our Tudors game coming out, Henry VIII, which is a pure Euro game. Uh, but it's fun. It's very strategic, but it's not a war game. So for your listeners, they'll probably go, eh. You know, it's about Henry VIII's court. But the only good thing I can tell them is there's some great backstabbing. So if you like a backstabbing game. <laughs> right. No, I, I would describe the listeners more as backstabbers than war gamers. So perhaps that's in the story. There you zone. go. Uh, so we, now, now, you've embraced uh, Kickstarter and used it quite a bit. Uh, it seems to be working out very well. Yes, we do about a third of our games on Kickstarter. And I love it. I love Kickstarter. It's a great marketing tool. It allows us to upgrade games like our tutors. If it weren't for Kickstarter, we're giving the Kickstarter supporters, and it's still available. If you go on Kickstarter, look up Tutor. The base game is a $75 game. We offered it for $60. And on top of that, the game comes with just wooden meeples. If you support the Kickstarter version and the late backer version, you're getting 68, 28, and 32 millimeter scale miniatures that are not available. They're Kickstarter exclusive, and any that we have remaining will sell for $50. So you're getting so much, but the Kickstarter allows us to put all the money into developing these very realistic medieval um, courtier and lords. And if it weren't for Kickstarter, we could do that. Plus, the Kickstarter keeps that cash flow going because we get the money right away. The Kickstarter ended last month, and guess what? We still plan on shipping by the end of September. So it's, it's, a, it's a nice quick turnaround for us. We did the same thing for Vikings. If it weren't for Kickstarter, we wouldn't be adding 130 little miniatures in with the game. So the Vikings game, a lot of people go, eh, I like cubes better. All right. For the 30 of you guys who like that and are vocal about that, great. But for the other 20,000 people that we sold in the last year and a half, they love the miniatures. And without Kickstarter, I don't think we would have gone that route. You know, one of the reasons that I like Kickstarter is, first of all, I know that it gives publishers a leg up and that you have this volume pre-sold and makes it reduces the risk a little bit. Uh, to some degree, but um, you know, I've, I've been burned so many times by interesting projects from publishers that I, that are new or I don't know. Uh, it 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 makes it very comforting to see an interesting project by a publisher that you've seen do it before and have confidence that they'll deliver. Kickstarter's changing. It used to be, um, it used to be almost hundred percent newbies. You didn't have to. You could put an idea out on Kickstarter and people would back it, so you could develop it. Kickstarter's changed so dramatically. We want to come out with Kickstarter with our first men in, our, our next Conflict of Heroes, this fall. But we have to delay it a whole nine months till the game is totally developed. We want to add miniatures, have miniatures with our Conflict of Heroes that our supporters will get for free if they support the board game that they then can play with miniatures. But then we have to have the miniatures fully done. We have to have reviews done. We have to have video presentations of outside well-known reviewers who are playing the game to get substantiation so that people go, oh, this game is done. It looks cool. I'm going to support this now. If it were like five years ago where you go, oh, I have this great idea here and I showed on paper and there's still people who do that, guess what? Big failure. So Kickstarter is now becoming 
more and more a tool for a company like us, who is a known company, we have a known factor to us, people know we do good quality, but Kickstarter allows us to even step beyond the expectations and allows us to spend tens of thousands of dollars on molds and miniatures and, and expanded counters and the trays that we're putting in the next Conflict of Heroes alone cost me another $6,000. $6,000 to design, do the development, and then the molding, and each one cost me another $1.60 to put in each game. But they're really cool, separate trays, et cetera, et cetera. Really high quality, so and very uniquely designed by Game Trays by uh, Noah Ottelman. So from that standpoint, um, the Kickstarter allows companies like us to increase the value to you because you're supporting us a little early. You're giving us the margins where we can su- survive on. We're giving a good deal, but compared to through full distribution, where we only get 34 cents on the dollar, and out of that 34 cents, 20 cents goes to printing the game, and those last 14 cents have to pay for all the royalties, the wages, electricity, the rent, the warehousing, paying for all the inventory, and then you have to sell 60% of your inventory just to break even on the print cost so that you can then start making a profit. It's changed the game that we can afford to do that because now a big percentage of our sales go through Kickstarter and direct sales, plus supporting the stores so that they don't get undercut by us. And everybody, there's a happy medium. The market is changing. We're right now in the influx. But I think stores are really going to survive and become thrive again in the future because of things that like Day is doing, because of Kickstarter that allow us to work with stores to support us doing the Kickstarter. And then we say, hey, go pick it at your local store. Go to that store you've never heard of. Pick up your game there. Don't pay shipping. All different ideas we're trying to tighten up the market so that the stores will support us. We make good money. The stores make good money. And the online retailers make good money without totally tanking the cost. You've answered a couple of questions already on what you watch with Netflix and what you've been reading. So uh, one of the other questions I'd like to ask is what do you listen to? Well, number one, you haven't said what I've been reading. I just tell you, right now I'm reading a very good book on Vietnam War, 100 Miles of Bad Road. Love it, love it, love it, love it. I'm reading um, the – I read a lot by Harvard Business Reviews. I read their – every book series that comes out. Right now I'm making one on Making Smart Decisions, which is, again, behavioral. Then I'm reading a great series of books called Germany in the Second World War. Uh, they're a little expensive, but they're by a um, five authors, German and I believe Dutch authors, or Danish authors, who've written this. And they're using the newest um, data coming out, just was published in 2017. Uh, Robert Smith told me about this one. Robert does a lot of great reviews for Armchair General and all. And I'm reading volume eight on this, and it's a, uh, my goodness, how many page book? 1,200 and 
well, 300 page book, you know, but it's a, it's a, it's a page turner. Um, then what I'm listening to, uh, I like, uh, Joe Nesbo. He's a, uh, Swedish, uh, I'm sorry, Norwegian author, a Krimi author, a Krimi, uh, what's the English word for Krimi? Um, can't help you there. A Krimi, a, a, a crime novel, a mystery detective type of suspense, you know, a Krimi, a, like criminal, criminal. Shoot. <laughs> that's, that's a problem when I start, when I'm listening to the stuff in German. Uh, I read a lot of books in German just because the translations in German often are better than in English, I think. Certainly. So, like, Lord of the Rings in German rocks. But Harry Potter in German sucks. So, <laughs> both, both written in English, of course. Yeah, but, you know, Tolkien written in German just feels good. It just feels <laughs> right. Harry Potter written in German. Not so much. Yeah. You know, German humor just is not good. And trying to translate British humor into German... Eh, doesn't work, you know. <laughs> Maybe French for Harry Potter or Italian. You know what? You're right. They're flowery languages. Yeah. And then anyway, never mind. I won't I won't I won't <laughs> piss off all the German listeners here. So, so anyway. All right, so so we've we've covered your reading list. So let's let's go to to music. Oh. Jazz. Love jazz. Big bad voodoo daddy. No if you haven't listened to him. Seaman concert. I was just at a Big Bad Voodoo Daddy concert. Oh, incredible. It's this it's this new modern swing jazz. Oh, love big, it. Big oh. band kind of thing. It's more of a swing jazz, not the old big band of, you know, the forties. I mean it's right. really so four or five piece kind of thing or Oh no, they've got a good I think they have eight people, but the the trumpet playing and all that is phenomenal like a winston marcellus on trumpet i mean these guys are just you're just hopping i mean it is just like like swing liddy hop swing hard driving you know that modern swing driving sound right. um so you know i love that i love um i'm not a sorry i'm not a a country fan but i love some of the new bluegrass coming out um and even the old stuff, you know, Tony Rice and Doyle Lawson and all that stuff. But that's give me some American American I, folk music, yes. Oh, some hard driving. Give me a good banjo and hard driving fiddles. And you know, there's there's the Steam Drivers, one of my favorite bands. Man, check them out. They do they they make country look like because country all it is is old rock, you know. <laughs> so I want I want some good lyrics, good four part harmonies with hard-driving instrumentals. Mm. Oh, you're getting me pumped.
the last piece, I was going to ask about what games you've been playing that uh, that aren't your own. Yeah, of course. We just played um, Twilight Imperium, fourth uh, edition. Had a lot. They really made some good, good changes to it. Really like that one. Um, it took us nine hours to play. So it's one of the longer ones. Um, it definitely could be designed better to speed up without any losses, but you'll have that. Um, been loving Gloomhaven. Been playing Gloomhaven. Yes, it's brilliant. Um, yeah. Been playing the new Pathfinder series, their second edition coming out. Looks, I mean, it plays really well. Uh, D&D, the fifth edition, is a lot of fun also. I haven't gotten into it as much just because I never had a problem with D&D, you know? So right. it's, I'm still on the third edition, 3.1, you know? So, but um, I hear they streamlined that a lot. Uh, some other games we've been playing. Um, oh, my goodness. We've been playing so many games. You know, even little puzzle games like Azul and... Uh, oh, The Mind. Love The Mind. Have you played The Mind yet? I have not played The Mind. It's becoming the game now. I played it when it was prototype. It's just a stupid deck of 99 cards. One to 99. <laughs> you mix them up. You give like you start out with one card each. And just by looking at each other and trading brain vibes and eyes and facial expressions, you can't say anything. You have to turn it in order from low to high. And if you make it the first one, then you get two cards each, then three, then four, then five, all the way to nine. And I tell you what, sometimes you got some brain waves going with people. And I found you got to be at a certain drunk level to be really good. So I've come to the conclusion that drunkenness actually increases the psychic ability of some of my friends. Interesting. So the mind is a lot of fun. Um, a heaven and ale, a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun with that. Um, a newer game out. Uh, so there are a lot of good uh, good games. My old favorites, we always play over and over again. The new um, Through the Ages is very good with the way they do the warfare and all. Yes, That's probably my wife and my favorite game. My wife is a weird wife. She plays A Twilight Struggle and Through the Ages. And if it's a big, heavy game like that, she's in heaven. You are a lucky you man. Some- yeah, you give her some light, frivolous game. Eh. I was playing uh, the Pacific War, or War in the Pacific. Remember that ancient huge? Right. We played that like three times through. I mean, that was one of her games. You know? So <laughs> I've been lucky enough to have, have a wife who uh, got me into the old um, supremacy game. I don't remember, know if you remember that with the little nuclear mushroom clouds. Um, I don't think so. Was it a card game? No, supremacy looked like risk, but it wasn't. No, you're taking not. you're taking control of you know different areas of the world, but it could get to the point where if you're if you're shooting off nuclear missiles, then everybody can lose. It, it was a phenomenal game, and I don't know why people nobody's publishing it anymore. Maybe we should get the rights. There you if go. Anybody else has the rights that that was one of my favorite games. But so good Euro games, um, they're they're just phenomenal coming out. What's coming out? Yeah, it's the the, the alternatives are uh, mind blowing to some degree. Conan is a lot of fun. I don't know if you've played the new Conan. This the the way they work, how the the AI the 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 bad guys are coming at you. One guy controls them, but.
but the cards are put in order, the, the, the tiles, for the different type of bad guys that are out there. And you're always pulling the leftmost tile, and when you use them, it goes back to the right side at the back of this line. But if you want to get some major bad boy coming out early, you have to pay some of your extra little um, cubes to pull them to the front of the line. And it's always this resource management. So well done. And if you're as a Conan player and his allies to take action costs you so many, I forgot what they call it. It's not mana. It's uh, these little, little cubes here. So um, the, the game designs are really making such advancement. So yeah, we play a lot of good games. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And I got to tell you, it's, it's Gloomhaven that's blown my mind as to the elegance and simplicity and uh, challenge of, uh, of an AI system. Yeah, it, it's it's wonderful. And it, it has a lot of simplicity to it still. Sure. Um, so and people in a few years are going to go, oh, how simplistic. Look where we've come. But it's one of those that and time stories and Charterstone are forging a new path forward for um, game design. In a few years, people may look back and, and put it down, but they are they are the forgers of a new way of our new campaign for agents of mayhem mm-hmm. takes what they started and we're bringing in such more dynamic pathways and, and just thousands of different endings that interweave with each other. And if you make a decision out ripples forward, but then decisions you may make in the future may totally again, change the outcome of what you did at another time. So we're taking pathways that they've created and now building on top of that. So games like that are, are just groundbreaking. So for your listeners, you know, Charterstone looks like a little girly game <laughs> and often it plays a little like a little girly game, but it is genius. What, what Jamie Stegmeyer did there, genius. What he did with Scythe, genius. So any of the Stegmire, not not any, let me take that back. A majority of the Stegmire games are are phenomenal. So I'm a real fan of his. I'm I'm one of his fanboys. Yeah, I, I think he's got a great mind for what's attractive to the universe of gamers. You're right. You know, I've got a I've got a pastel blue t shirt with his face with flowers all around it. <laughs> that that's a fan I am. That's terrific. So, I've not shown this this T-shirt to anybody, but when I'm alone at home playing my war games, I wear that shirt. Love it, and I look forward to seeing it at Gen Con. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, uh, Uva, thank thank you for taking the time and uh, and and missing a third of a soccer game uh, to yeah, I know. to talk. But I, I I appreciate the time, and it was uh, fantastic, and so many unanswered questions. Uh, more more to come. Hopefully, we can do this again. I really appreciate it, and yeah, thanks, sorry for rambling on. So that's a wrap for this podcast. I'll publish some notes and references on my website, conflictsimulations.com. Join the Herald on Games Guild on BoardGameGeek and leave me a comment with your thoughts and ideas. Thanks to the Athens-Greece-based band Puta Volcano 
and the Visalia, California-based band Slow Season for the music. Check them out at iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook. I'll close with a special thanks to Uva Eichert. And that's it for me. As always, I'm better translated to German.